So we are in Mark chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We're in verses 27 through 31. Mark is in, your new, in, in the New Testament, and that's about three-fourths of the way through. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Big number is the chapter. Small, number, small numbers are the verses. We'll start in verse 27. You can also find this passage in your bulletin if you don't have a physical Bible, or if you don't have the app, that Bible app. Starting verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word in written form that we can hold, that we can see. Thank you for the word incarnate in Christ. We ask that this whole service would point to him. We ask that our worship would honor you, would magnify Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would show us through your word what you would have for us. We pray that I would speak clearly. We pray that you would use this to sanctify your people, that you would also give everyone here a spirit of discernment. So if there's anything that I say that's not consistent with what your word says, that they would not embrace it. God, we are grateful for the way that you have built your church, sending visitors, sending new people. Lord, we're also grateful for uh, the internal growth of having new children. And Lord, we think of the Fagans as um, they just recently had Alice. We pray that you would continue to help them recover and help them transition well into this new stage of life. Lord, we, as a church, want to care for them and care for others well, so please help us do that. We pray also uh, for other churches that are proclaiming the gospel. Lord, we think of Proclamation Church. Lord, they specifically have asked that we would pray for them for encouragement. Lord, the church is weary from all the sickness that has gone around, and Lord, we know that they're not the only ones. This COVID season has been difficult. They've asked for prayer for provision that you would meet their needs, that you would send somebody to, to help lead music. Lord, that is, we are so fortunate here to have several people. And God, we praise you for that. We know you are the one that builds your church. We pray that you would provide some people to lead music at Proclamation Church. Lord, we pray for their evangelism as well, that they would be intentional in evangelism, that they would see fruit. Lord, we pray that for ourselves too. Lord, it's a gift to gather here and to hear the gospel. But we pray that we would have a sense of urgency to take that to our neighbors, to take that to our coworkers, to take that to our non-believing family members. We pray that through the preaching of your word this morning, that through the singing, 
through the Lord's Supper, through reading, through prayers, that we'd be sharpened and that we'd be equipped to go from here to live faithfully for Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen. So some of you know that I work outside of the church. I work for a relatively large company. And so each year we have what's called compliance and ethics training. So we have to watch a bunch of videos. And I see some of you nodding your heads. You know all about this. And so they're super fun videos to sit through for two and a half to three hours. And one of the things that they warn people against in these videos is what's called quid pro quo. This for that. Merriam-Webster defines it as something given or received for something else. Say, do not give in to a this for that, whether it's type of harassment, whether it's type of uh, trying to make a, a deal that is not ethical. It's called quid pro quo, this for that. And if we t- examine major world religions, what we will recognize is that nearly every, every major world religion has a this for that or a quid pro quo form of salvation. Do this for that, for salvation, however that particular world religion defines it. Christianity is the the only religion where the requisites for that are done by the God who sets the requisites. Christianity is the only one whose God has entered into humanity through Jesus Christ to perfectly and faithfully fulfill the demands that the Father has set forth. Fulfill the law perfectly. It's the, it's the only religion that when we see the list required, that the one who made the list has perfectly fulfilled on our behalf and then freely gives it through faith and through faith alone. Perfectly imputes that righteousness to all those who trust in him for salvation. Now, what we see in the passage today is an example, or just shouldn't even say an example. We see this particular thing highlighted. We see unfaithful disciples, and we see a faithful Savior. And I would submit to you that despite our unfaithfulness, Christ continues to remain faithful. Despite our faithlessness, Christ remains faithful. I hope that's the main theme that we'll see in the passage this morning. And I hope that we also see in this passage just a display of God's amazing grace toward his people and God's patience toward those of us who continue to wrestle with sin. And so as a reminder, we've been going through Mark. We've been going passage by passage. It's been, it was written by John Mark. That's how it gets its name. John Mark was um, an attendant to Peter. And Peter provided a lot of information for this gospel. And that's actually pretty important for this passage because this passage is very clear on Peter's failings. And we'll see more of that as we get to the end of the chapter. But just as a side note, it's passages like this that show some of the early church's most notable figures falling flat on their face that make Christianity convincing. Because if you're creating a religion... It would not make a lot of sense to say, hey, one of our top guys, here's, here's a big area where he failed. We'd want to say, hey, he was, he was a stellar role model. He did all these things right. But we consistently see that the disciples made mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. And the ones who made those mistakes provided the information 
to those writing it or they wrote it themselves. And if you're creating a religion, then typically you're not going to want to paint yourself in a bad light. So the fact that the disciples fell flat on their face and that's all recorded for us and they're affirming it, yeah, we fell on our face. Then it's a convincing argument for this. This is probably true. That's probably why they're sharing embarrassing information here. That wasn't in my notes, but that's extra. There you go. And so what we see throughout Mark is it's God redeeming and restoring his wayward people. He's done this primarily through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that play out more, especially in the upcoming passages, because as we said last week, this is, we're now in the port part of the, the book where Jesus is less than 24 hours away from his death. So last week we saw the Passover meal being instituted. And during that Passover meal, there's a bit of an awkward interaction because Jesus reveals to the disciples that one of his own, one of the disciples are going to betray him. It's revealed that that's Judas. And then he institutes the Lord's Supper, the new Passover. They sing a hymn, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then this week, as we see in these passages, you'll see in your bulletin three points that I'd like to get across. If you have a pen, you can fill in those fill-in-the-blanks early, but those points are Christ is faithful despite our fall, Christ is faithful despite our denial, and Christ is faithful despite our pride. So let's look at each of those, starting with the first one. Christ is faithful despite our fall. So we see in verse 27, Jesus is now talking to his disciples. Now, the disciples and Jesus are likely on their way to the Mount of Olives. The last verse is that they went out and they went on their way to the Mount of Olives. So now, likely, while they're walking there, Jesus is probably having conversation with his disciples. They're all probably a little bit shocked at what just happened, Judas being exposed for being the one to betray Jesus. And so it wouldn't, it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility that the disciples on their way there are talking about this, what just happened. Might be a little bit in shock and maybe they're talking amongst themselves and saying, you know what, it's actually not that surprising. Judas was, I always thought he was kind of a dirtbag, like it's not surprising. He, thankfully it's not us, but man, man alive, this is crazy that one of Jesus' own would, would do that. And then Jesus jumps in <laughs> and he says, something that would shock all of them. He says, you will all fall away. So on the way to the Mount of Olives, as they're potentially still talking about what just happened with Judas falling away, before any pride can build up in them, Jesus says, no, 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 you will all fall away. And Jesus predicted three times earlier in the book, in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10, his death, burial, and resurrection. So when he says you'll all fall away, there might be a, a hint of frustration. He is in the flesh, and Jesus has told them multiple times that he will die. But he also told them multiple times that he will be raised. But he's telling them that when he dies, they'll all scatter. They'll scatter out of fear. They'll fall away. They won't be faithful. The, uh, yesterday, our family went over to Kosai. Had a, had a great time. Kosai's a ton of fun. Got to go as a kid. So I had a lot of memories there. So it was fun to take our kids and let them experience some of those same memories. And there, there's a time when I said, hey, I could use the restroom real quick. So Danielle and the girls sat outside in the hallway. I'd go use the restroom. I came back. And thankfully, they were still there. 
it would be frustrating if while I was in the restroom, they just came to the conclusion, well, I guess dad's gone. Let's, maybe he's at home. Let's go in the car and let's drive home. And I come out and they're not there. That, that would be frustrating. I told them, I'm, I'm just going to the restroom. I'll be back in just a minute. Jesus has told the disciples several times that he is going to die and that he will be raised up. And even still, after telling them several times, they're going to be scattered. They're going to fall away. If you've ever felt lonely, if you've ever felt betrayed, if you've ever felt frustrated or hurt by a relationship, Jesus can relate. His closest companions, when he needs them the most, fall away. If you've ever been frustrated that your words don't seem to be getting through to some loved ones, Jesus can relate. Again, he's told them at least three times, three times that are recorded, likely more. But Jesus then quotes an Old Testament passage. So if you look the second part of verse 27, he says, I will strike the shepherd. He says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, this is a reference from Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13, verse 7. If you have a reference Bible, you might see a little letter next to that in your Bible, and you'll see the reference. But essentially, Jesus is letting his disciples know, one, that they're going to be scattered, they're going to fall away, and two, it's going to happen because God said it's going to happen. Jesus, we believe the Bible because Jesus believed the Bible. He saw these things written, and he views himself as the shepherd here, the shepherd that will be struck. And it's interesting, if you look at that passage closely, what we see taking place is you see God the Father striking God the Son. God the Father striking God the Son, because Jesus sees himself as the shepherd. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Why would God the Father strike God the Son? Because the Son, who took on flesh, Jesus Christ, strapped our sin to himself. And sin always needs to be punished. There is no forgiveness of sin except for the shedding of blood. That's what Hebrews tells us. And so if God the Son takes on our sin, then he takes on our punishment. But if you look at the first verse of Zechariah 13, you don't have to turn there, but it reads this, On that day... There will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So what, what does that mean? It means that, as one uh, source put it, the striking of the shepherd, the striking of the shepherd who stands next to God, occurs in order to purify the people. The pure one is struck because he has taken on our sin. Now the pure one who is struck is able to make others pure. By striking that pure one, our sin can be paid for and purification is made possible. So he says, after, after he's struck, after the shepherd is struck, the sheep are going to scatter. He says, it's written this way. I'm telling you this is going to happen because it's written. And as we read the rest of the Gospels, we see that that is, in fact, what took place. But as he identifies himself as the shepherd, we are identified here as the sheep. Now, it is interesting, Spurgeon writes this, that believers are not compared to bears 
or to lions or other animals that wander alone. Those who belong to Christ are sheep in this respect, that they love to get together. Sheep go in flocks, and so do God's people. It would be nice if the Lord defined us as a pack of wolves or lions or bears. So it'd, be, it'd be great. We'd feel pretty good about ourselves. I, I told you last week I grew up on a hobby farm. Sheep are dumb animals. They just are. And that's what we're consistently compared to is sheep, defenseless animals. There's not much that sheep can do to defend against those who want to harm them. But they can be in a flock. They can be together. And typically when they're together, there's one leading them, a shepherd. But when the shepherd is struck, Jesus says, all of the sheep will scatter. They will fall away. And here's the thing, as we see in verse 28. (laughs) Despite the disciples' unfaithfulness, despite their unfaithfulness, Jesus will still be raised. Verse 28, Jesus says, but after I am raised up. He's saying he's going to be raised up. He says, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Look, the mission was never dependent on the work of the sheep. Jesus' mission was never dependent on our works. Jesus knew that he would be betrayed and abandoned. Jesus knew that he would be beaten and killed. Jesus knew that his people would at times be unfaithful. But the success of the mission was never dependent on the work of the people. It was dependent on the work of the shepherd. And Jesus, by his grace, perfectly fulfills what is required of a shepherd to be faithful. The disciples' faithlessness does not overpower Jesus' faithfulness. The plan of redemption will continue to march forward. Jesus will be raised. And then, what he says is that he's going to meet them in Galilee. So he says, hey, look, okay, Judas is going to betray me. That stinks. They have dinner. Then they go from there. And he says, hey, actually, you're all going to fall away. None of my closest friends are going to be faithful in the end. He says, but you know what? I love you guys. I will be raised. And I'm going to come back to you. And I'm going to meet you in Galilee. And I will continue to lead you. The grace that is extended from Jesus is incredible here. You and I, if our closest companion or if our closest friends abandon us in our greatest time of need, it would be tough for us to get over that if we're honest with ourselves. Jesus doesn't flinch. Jesus tells us that he will meet the disciples and he'll go before them in Galilee. This is just another display of Jesus' divinity. He knows what's going to take place. We've talked about this several times. I don't need to beat that dead horse. But again, we see Jesus just knowing what's going to happen. As we continue to read the Gospels, we see that everything that he says comes to pass. So God's love and his grace are displayed in this passage when he says, you will be unfaithful, but I will still come back to you and I will still lead you. The salvation that God extends was never and will never be dependent on your work. This is good news. This is very good news. You will fall. You will sin. But look at me. God 
knew every failure, every sin that you would commit before ever offering salvation to you. So there's nothing you can do to take that offer off the table. Be encouraged that your salvation is not dependent on your work. Despite the disciples' faithlessness, Christ remains faithful. Despite his disciples' faithfulness, Christ returns for them. Even when we fall, even when we are faithless, if we are in Christ, we confess our sin, he is still coming back for us. Christ is faithful despite our fall. Second, Christ is faithful despite our denial. See that first point, despite our fall, and now we see the second point, despite our denial. Look at me in verse 29. So Jesus just shares this with them, that they're going to fall away. And Peter, typical Peter, is the one to speak up, and he says this, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Peter thinks pretty highly of himself. Peter is the, the lead disciple, so to speak. Each time you see in the Gospels and in Acts, his name is listed first. And so it's, it's not too surprising that Peter would be the one to speak up here. But Peter says, hey, look, even though they might, even though they might be like Judas, some chumps over here, um, Jesus, you know, I won't fall away. You know I won't. I will not do it. Not me. Peter's always been brash and quick to speak his mind. He does it here, and it gets him in trouble. Verse 30, Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you. You almost wonder if Jesus was grinning when he said this. Oh, Peter, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter denied Jesus' statement that they'll all fall away. And Jesus, in a roundabout way, says, hey, you might deny that statement, but you're actually going to deny me. And you're not going to do it once, you're going to do it three times. When we see three times, anything three times in the scriptures, you can know that the author's trying to make a point. We can know that there's some emphasis there, that it's emphatic. That Jesus is not just going to deny Jesus, or excuse me, Peter's not just going to deny Jesus, he's going to deny him emphatically. He's going to do it publicly. He's going to do it before the rooster crows twice. I said it already. I grew up on a, on a hobby farm. We had roosters. Roosters don't just crow once in the morning. They'll crow multiple times. And so when we see the rooster crows twice in Mark, but it doesn't say that anywhere else in the Gospels, it just says just before the rooster crows, don't be caught up by that. Peter's the one giving Mark the information here. And so Peter probably remembers these words especially clearly. That Jesus said before the rooster would crow twice. I would deny him three times. And so Jesus, in his grace, in his kindness, shares the truth with Peter. He exposes Peter. And it's painful, but he does it. Peter thinks he's strong, when in reality, Peter is pretty weak. Peter thinks that he'll never fall. But in fact, he'll fall that very night. Peter thinks he's the most faithful of all the disciples. But Jesus reveals to him that after Judas, Peter, you're going to be the first one to fall. Peter thinks he'll deny Jesus zero times. 
And Jesus says that he'll actually deny him three times. Emphatic, three times. And here's what we see. We see that, Jesus, that Peter's denial of Jesus' words. So Peter denying what Jesus said. Jesus said, you're all going to fall away. Peter denies it. His denial of Jesus' words actually leads to his denial of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, when we begin to reject the word, when we begin to reject what the Lord has said, it's not far downstream that we will eventually just reject the Lord entirely. How often are we like Peter? I love Jesus. Jesus, I'll never deny you. But do you actually mean this? Does the Bible actually say this? See Genesis 3 when after God had created and said it is good and he creates all things. And then we see Genesis 3, verse 1, that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And hear this. He said to the woman, did God actually say? This, did God actually say? Jesus, did you actually say? Jesus, do you actually mean dot, dot, dot? Is exactly the tactic that Satan uses to lead God's people astray. Peter's denial of Jesus' words eventually led to his denial of Jesus. We, as followers of Jesus, need to humbly submit ourselves to his, his word. This is our guide. Regardless of our present circumstances, we must hold to Christ. We must hold to the word. Jesus is in a very difficult circumstance at this moment. He's less than 24 hours away from being crucified. And what does he do? He quotes Zechariah. He quotes God's word. We must humbly hold firmly to God's word. The way that we do that is by trusting Christ as he guides us with his word. The way that we hold firm to Christ is by humbly trusting him as he guides us with his word. We can't make it up as we go. We don't have that privilege. And so in his kindness, Jesus showed Peter the truth. Jesus showed Peter that he was operating under some false pretenses. Peter, you're not as strong as you thought you were. You're actually going to deny me. And Jesus does this not just to put Peter in his place. He does it because he loves Peter. Jesus is willing to have these difficult conversations. He's willing to share the truth because he loves his disciples. So a question for us this morning is, is who do we need to have a difficult conversation with? Is it a family member? Is it a, a friend, a church member, a coworker, or a neighbor? Who do we need to have a difficult conversation with? Because to withhold the truth, to withhold a difficult conversation is to withhold love. Jesus wasn't willing to do that with his disciples. So he shared with them difficult things. We too must be willing to have difficult conversations with those that we love. So Jesus not only knew that his companions would fall away, but he also knew that his lead disciple would deny him three times, would deny him emphatically. Yet, even in that denial, Christ remains faithful. Christ remains faithful despite our fall, despite our denial, and now Christ remains faithful despite our pride. Look with me in verse 31. This is Peter speaking. 
He said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Peter's pride leads him to double down on the statement. You would think that being with Jesus for three years and seeing everything Jesus said, Jesus was perfect. He's perfectly sinless. Everything that he said came to pass. He didn't say something and it didn't happen. You would think Peter would recognize, hey, you've said this. Um, The consistent pattern is that you say it and and it takes place. Now you've said this, it's probably going to take place. Maybe I should take a posture of, of humility here and ask how to prevent that from taking place. No, he just says Jesus is wrong. He says emphatically. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. You said I'll deny you three times. I will not do it. Jesus, you're wrong. There's some irony here because we said that Jesus told him that Peter will deny him three times. We said that's a point of emphasis, an emphatic denial. And now we see Peter emphatically denying what Jesus has said again. He said emphatically, I will not deny you. And then what we can notice is that Peter's pride stirred up the pride of the rest of the disciples. Jesus was talking to all the disciples, you'll all fall away. Peter, being the leader, went up and, and said, no, 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 I don't think so. And then Jesus said, no, Peter, you're, yours is actually going to be the worst. And then Peter doubles down, emphatically denies what he says, and then all the disciples jump in. They all say the same, yeah, we'll die before we deny you, Jesus. No one spoke up. Pride is a blinding characteristic. It's also a contagious characteristic. We see the pride of the disciples being, being built up here because one person acted out in pride. No one spoke against the group's pride. No one thought, maybe Jesus is right. They insisted that they were right. We can all think of that one person in our lives who's just flat out characterized by pride. No one tends to be, want to be around that guy or that girl. Jonathan Edwards said that pride is the worst viper in the human heart. It's the worst viper in the human heart. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Look, I know, I know few people who willingly walk toward destruction. Hey, th- this, this path is going to lead to my life being destroyed. Um, yeah, I'm going to take that path. I'm going to keep, keep walking down it. There are few people who will knowingly do that. Pride is blinding. Pride goes before destruction. So if you're here and, and you're maybe not religiously affiliated, maybe you're just not sure, maybe you're considering things, you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, I would ask, have you considered your pride? Maybe you know somebody that you work with Maybe this is a question you can ask them, as awkward as that might be. Uh, Psalm 10.4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Maybe the person you're thinking of, or maybe you this morning, wouldn't say that there is no God. Maybe you'd say, there certainly could be a God, but I'm just not convinced that it is the God of Christianity. In fact, doesn't it seem a little proud preacher, as you're standing up there about going against pride, doesn't it seem a little proud, a little arrogant that you would say that there is only one God and that there couldn't possibly be another way? I would submit to you, yeah, that, that, that would seem proud. That would seem arrogant. If 
That was our own words. But God himself tells us in John 14, 6, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. So we can only say what God has said. To reject the exclusivity of Christ being the only way is to reject Christianity as a whole. You can't be a follower of Jesus and say, I think there might be other ways. Because Jesus himself said that he was the only way. So the question we have to ask ourselves, is Christianity exclusive or is it inclusive? And the answer is both. Christianity is at the same time the most exclusive religion in all the world in that the only way to come to the Father is through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. But on the other side of that coin, Christianity is also the most inclusive religion because anybody who walks through that door, who goes through Christ, will be brought and reunited to the Father. It's simultaneously the most exclusive and the most inclusive. And so who is being proud? Is it the one who acknowledges their sin and receives Christ and follows him? Or is it the one who rejects him? Joel Beakey, a pastor, professor, and seminary president, says this about pride. He says, pride is a devastating sin and is complex. Most sins turn us away from God, but pride directly attacks God. It lifts us above and against God, seeking to dethrone him by enthroning ourselves. Christian, is there unchecked pride in your life? Pride will show up in various different ways. It might not be over here in this department of your life. It might be in another one. Is there unchecked pride in your life? Confess it. Turn away from it. Flee from pride. Be marked with humility. You saw Peter and the disciples' pride leading them to fall away. If there's unchecked pride, confess it. Turn away from it. Mark yourselves with humility, whether that's at home, whether that's at work, with those you manage, or perhaps with those who manage you, whether that's in the public square, whether that's in filing your taxes. So we approach that. File your taxes with humility and with honesty. Whether that's in your relationship with the Lord, one of the best ways that we can display humility toward God is by coming before him in prayer to recognize that, God, I need you to act here. I cannot do this on my own, so I'm coming before you. And then to follow that up by being in his word, recognizing that he has spoken and that we humbly need to receive what he has said. We speak to God through prayer. We receive what he says through his word. There's a reason why it's called his word. He has spoken. Christian, are there relationships with people in your life that you need to have a difficult conversation with? Are you willing to have that conversation? Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful friends are willing to say difficult things. Enemies flatter. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Jesus was a real friend to the disciples. Jesus loved Peter and the disciples. So he was willing to tell them the truth, despite their pride. Peter's pride eventually led to Peter's fall. But Christ's 
faithfulness will eventually lead to Peter's restoration. We won't see this in Mark, but we see it in John. If you read John 21, we don't need to go there. But in John 21, we see Jesus returning to Peter. And he tells him, Peter, do you love me? He asked him that three times. Peter denied him three times. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus responds, feed my sheep. Lead my sheep. Feed my sheep. God, in his kindness, restores those who fall. We will all fall. God, in his kindness, restores those who deny. God, in his kindness, restores the proud. Christ's faithfulness is sufficient for Peter's restoration and for the disciples' restoration. Christ's faithfulness is sufficient for your restoration. See, the whole theme of Mark is God restoring his wayward people happens through Christ's faithfulness, even if you've recently fallen, even if you are living in a way that denies Christ. If you confess your sin, he will forgive you. Even if your life has been defined by pride, Jesus is the faithful shepherd who returns to his sheep even after they go astray. He brings them back and he leads them again despite their tendency to scatter. This is why it's so important for us to gather the way we do each first day of the week. It's because we have a tendency to scatter. However, Christ brings his people back and leads them. D.L. Moody says this, He says, no matter how low or down you are, no matter what your disposition has been, you may be low in your thoughts, words, and actions. You may be selfish. Your heart may be overflowing with corruption and wickedness. Yet, Jesus will have compassion on you. He will speak comforting words to you, not treat you coldly or spurn you, as perhaps those of earth would, but will speak tender words and words of love and affection and kindness. Just come at once. He is a faithful friend, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. If you find yourself this morning thinking, I have fallen, thinking I have lived in a way that's denied Christ, my Savior, or perhaps there are areas of my life that are marked by pride, I need to confess, Jesus is a faithful friend. He says, come at once. He will speak comforting words to you. Despite our faithlessness, Christ remains faithful. Are we just saying our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Great is his faithfulness, the faithfulness of a good shepherd. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you have given us a faithful shepherd. We see the disciples, how they fall. Or we see how Peter denied you. We see the pride of Peter and the disciples. And Lord, we would be arrogant to think that none of that applies to us. And so we ask that you would show us by your Holy Spirit where we need to repent, where we need to confess our sin to you. And Lord, fill us with confidence knowing that you are good, knowing that you are just, and that you are righteous, and that you will forgive. 
Thank you for being consistent. That every time we come to you, your disposition does not change. That if we come before you with repentance and ask for forgiveness, your response will always be forgiveness. Thank you for that. We pray that you would help us to take this news to others. We pray that we would faithfully live out this news. We ask this in Christ's strong name. Amen.